Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39, and can be found on page 861 of the Pew Bibles. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. The word of the Lord. Morning, Calvary family. It's good to be together this morning. I just wanted to give a little reminder, if you've seen these uh, little white booklets. These are for you. So if you haven't got one, I encourage you to grab one. Um, this is just a guide for you all uh, throughout the week and throughout the season of Lent um, to worship in your own homes and just to be a help for you. And so it's a guide for you throughout uh, yeah, the entire season of Lent. So hopefully uh, this can be helpful for you, different practices each day. Um, and if you decide not to use it daily, but you're like catching up, that's no big deal. Um, use it however is best for you, um, but just encourage you to grab one of these on your way out. Uh, hopefully that can be a blessing to you. Um, let me pray one more time as we, before we get into God's word. Father in heaven, thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for this moment we have this morning to be together to have your word read to us, to hear your word, to sing your word, to encourage each other. And so, Father, I just pray that as we are here this morning, that through all of that, we will leave refreshed in our passion to know and follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'd like to ask you all a question here at the beginning that will be a question that kind of shapes uh, the sermon throughout, um, and that is, who is your favorite soccer team? No, just joking, that's <laughs> not the question. Though an important question, that is not the question. The question is this. In your relationship with God, with what part of your body do you most typically relate to God with? I'm not sure if you have been asked this question before. As this question kind of came, kind of came to me this week in preparation, I realized I don't think that I've ever been asked that question. And so maybe you haven't either, so maybe be helpful to repeat if that's a question you've never been asked before or thought about. In your relationship with God, with what part of your body 
do you most typically relate to God with? As you process this question, I'm sure if we took a poll here, there'd probably be a variety of different responses. For me, the clear answer when I was thinking about this this week was my head, my mind. I'm inclined to prioritize thinking in my relationship with God. For me, scripture reading and prayer, oftentimes I feel that in my head, trying to think good thoughts, think the right thoughts, whether in prayer or in scripture reading. Many years ago, though, I had it kind of exposed to me that my relationship with God was primarily focused from my neck and up. And this felt accurate to me. <laughs> I agreed with the person. Uh, and I think why was it was the safest way for me to establish a relationship with God. I like to read. I like to think. And so keeping my relationship with God from the neck and up felt manageable. And I fear, as a caveat, that maybe this is true for, for many pastors, actually. We tend to live in the world of the neck up and trying to think right thoughts, share good thoughts, when there's so much of the work of the body of Christ that is in whether medicine, thinking about the body constantly, or you just work with your hands. And sometimes we just get stuck in our heads. But I think we could be more helpful giving the whole church family categorized ways of relating to God with our whole body. So at some point in my Christian journey, I came to grips with the fact that God made my whole body. I know, a new thought for you all, I'm sure. Not just my head. And that my whole body was precisely how God imagined I would relate to him. In God's beautiful creativity and imagination as he created humanity in the early chapters of Scripture, as we read, he created fully embodied human beings, and as a result of that, stated, this is very good. Our entire bodies. So back to my opening question. In your relationship with God, with what part of your body do you most typically relate to God with? And asking this question, I want us this morning to understand and explore that God intends for us to relate to him with our entire bodies. This is really obviously not a new point at all. When we look at the greatest commandment in Scripture, Luke records it for us in Luke chapter 10. He says, you shall love the Lord your God 
with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And so without going into detail about each of those components and how to understand them and how they relate that Jesus refers to in this greatest commandment, the main idea I want us to understand from simply the great commandment is that we are to relate to God with our whole selves, our whole persons. As images of God, we cannot, we cannot separate our existence as physical and spiritual. Our whole design as human beings is this fusion of physical and spiritual. And so I was trying to think of a word that helped me think of this fusion. And what kept coming to my mind is entirety. We are called to love God with our entirety. Gone have to be the days when we think about our spirituality apart from our bodies. Back to my opening question one more time. In your relationship with God, with what part of your body do you most typically relate to God with? How many of us this morning immediately thought, well, our stomachs, of course, Maybe you saw where we were going with this introduction, where I was going with this introduction, based on the scripture reading about fasting and feasting. But how many of us thought the most clear way we relate to God with our bodies is our stomach? Have you ever thought about how your relationship with God is felt in your body? As we get into our text this morning and the practices of fasting and feasting, again, I want to reiterate, it is important to understand that our full bodies are so deeply important in the way we relate to God. I don't want to simply just talk about fasting and feasting as spiritual disciplines, Fasting and feasting aren't simply spiritual disciplines. They are ways of connecting our deepest sorrows and our deepest joys to our relationship with God. To feel God, to feel our relationship with God in our deepest sorrows and our highest joys. Our stomachs become a crucial location through which we feel the pain and joy of the world. Let's try not to make this all hypothetical, though. Take a moment now and process the hardest situation you have been through in the last year. How did that impact you? How did you feel close or far from God? But also think about 
your happiest situation this year, in the last year? How did you relate to God in that joy? I think Jesus intends for us to relate to him in our highest joys and our deepest sorrows through our stomachs. Because our bodies, our entirety, or as the Old Testament calls, our soul, our soul isn't a reference to some immaterial thing out there. Our soul with the Old Testament authors is a way of talking about our whole entirety, our whole person. The reason why our stomachs are a way for us to connect to the deepest sorrows and highest joys that we experience is because our bodies were meant as a means to connect to God, a way to relate and connect with God. Food is intended to be a meaningful indicator of where we are at in life. And so our bodies are deeply connected to our relationship with God. I want to look at our text this morning now, taking those thoughts and, and now looking at our text. I want to read for us a few verses before our main text. Our main text is Luke 5, 33-39. But I want to read a few verses before, starting in verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, Levi rose and followed Jesus. And Levi made Jesus a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So let's rehearse this story that we see in Luke chapter 5. Jesus meets Levi. We also know Levi as Matthew. Levi is a tax collector. There's a lot of information about tax collectors that we have. Uh, At the very least, we know this. They were not well-liked. They were not well-received into the mainstream of, of Judaism at this time. They were absolute traitors. They worked for Rome, or even Herod at times. And so they were taking money and giving to, so to speak, the enemy or for themselves. So, one, they represented the enemy, though oftentimes being Jewish, and they took your money. (laughs) Nobody likes to be taxed. Nobody likes to have your money taken away from you, right? And so you didn't like them. They were traitors. So this is Levi. And you can imagine the kind of crowd that goes with an extortionist. Jesus comes to Levi, this tax collector, and says, follow me. 
what does Levi do? He follows Jesus. He follows Jesus just like that. There's very little given to us in that transaction, but you've got to imagine there was something about Jesus that just demanded Levi's attention. Maybe Jesus saw Levi in a way that no other Jew saw him, and Jesus welcomed him and said, you will be a part of my association, come with me. That probably was not the typical response Levi would receive from most Jews to be received in association with. But Jesus says, follow me, be with me. And when Levi is seen by a Jewish rabbi like Jesus and received into Jesus' association, given all that's going on in the Jesus movement, what does Levi do? He throws a party. (laughs) That's what you do when Jesus comes to you. When Jesus comes to you and welcomes you and sees you, no matter what you've done, you throw a party. You feast. That's what Levi did. Levi's response to being welcomed by Jesus is to feast. It's interesting to note two responses that Jesus gets in this text. So in the, pre, the text we just read and then the text that was read earlier, there's two main critiques on Jesus. One of them is just simply who Jesus was eating with. Not initially that Jesus was eating and drinking, but in the first concern that is brought to Jesus by the Pharisees and scribes is they grumbled to his disciples saying, Why does this Messiah, if this is the true Savior for Israel, and if he is going to be a leader for our nation, why is this leader eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And we probably like to think of the scene where Jesus shows up and everyone kind of cleans up for him. That's not what's going on here. Levi's throwing the party, right? This is not a manageable party that Jesus shows up and everyone cleans up for him. Like, this is a party. This is a party. And this is a party with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus, in some way, finds a way to feel right at home. Because he's here to help. He's here to help people that know their need for him, that are willing to admit their need for him. And Jesus receives them. We have to reimagine this scene with a friend of ours who would be hanging out with a group that we don't think they should be hanging out with, caught right in the middle, and all we can see is the party that is. And how would we handle that person? Would we assume the best of them or the worst? Likely we should read ourselves as the Pharisees and scribes into this story saying to our friends that might take that risk, why are you eating and drinking with sinners? This is what Jesus was critiqued for. The second critique that Jesus receives is just the very fact that he was eating and drinking. (laughs) 
because John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees, they were disciplined. They fasted and prayed consistently and regularly like a good disciplined person does. But Jesus exposed one misunderstanding to fasting, and that had nothing to do with discipline. Fasting has nothing to do with discipline. Fasting is not, first, trying to accomplish something. Fasting is not trying to accomplish something. Fasting is not results-oriented. Fasting is also not trying to go show God this time we're serious because you didn't answer the prayer the way we wanted to the last time, so I guess I need to up it. And so now I'm going to fast, and you need to know I'm serious, God, and I expect you to honor it. Fasting is not trying to accomplish something. It's not results-oriented. It's not trying to show God how serious we are. It's not a way to establish self-discipline. Fasting is a response. Fasting is a response when God, by his Spirit, gives you a window into your brokenness and the ways that you have hurt and been short with other people, where if you've lost your temper, where you've hurt other people, this is what happens when God gives you a window into who we are apart from his spirit. And we can do nothing else when we see and are exposed to our own sin or our own community's sin, like the Ninevites in Jonah and like Ezra on behalf of Israel. And when you get exposed to the brokenness that you have received or that you have given or been a part of, the response is to fast. Because what you are doing is you're bringing into alignment the pain that is your experience. Your body matches your experience. It's not just about thinking about how bad you are. It's not just about asking for forgiveness in your head. It's about stripping food so that you are actually crabby and you're even more angry than you were about what you saw about yourself. Because in your body, you're now worshiping God. You're confessing in your stomach, God, I need you. And all the crabbiness that is going to be amplified without nutrition marries your reality and your relationship with God. That is the predominant experience of fasting from Genesis to Revelation. There are other responses. The next one would be tragedy and loss like it was for David, like it was for Nehemiah, and like it was for Esther. The tragedy that they were experiencing and the loss they were experiencing was only known to respond 
with taking food away. And that the anguish they felt in their stomach was a way of relating to God in the anguish that they experienced elsewhere. There is one other very rare experience where people fast, something like Acts 13, where the church senses that God is doing something really powerful. And so they fast as the Spirit of God is initiating work among them. And then as the Spirit initiates work among them, that the Spirit of God is going to ask them to do something profound in the world, they fast to listen more intently. But again, it's a response to the work and initiation of God. This is fasting. Jesus wants to clarify us for us, though, that what we're feeling in our stomachs could also be fullness, not just emptiness. Jesus said, what did they get wrong? What did they get wrong about the question? The point about fasting or feasting was never about self-discipline. And if you're going to then, in response to something tragic in your life, plan feasting, which is fine, you can do that, but just go into your closet and put some makeup on so you don't look like you're doing it. That's what Jesus says. Go into your closet, put some water on your face, don't let everyone know. We don't need to know about your self-discipline. And then go back into your closet and weep and fast. The point is, the point is for Jesus that he is the reference point. That the time to feel empty is when he's absent. The time to feel full is when he's present. Jesus is the reference point about how we should relate to God through our stomachs. Why is Jesus the ultimate reference point? Because Jesus shares with us that he is God's provision to us and all creation to respond to the evil that exists in us in the world. Jesus is God's provision that our evil and wickedness isn't the final word. Jesus is God's provision that death is not the final say. And so Jesus says, when the bridegroom is present at the wedding, why would you fast? And what he's telling these questioners, he's saying, I'm here. Why would you worry about fasting when I'm here with you? There is going to be a time when I'm going to be gone, when I will be absent in reference to his death. And in response to the tragedy of not being in the presence of Jesus any longer, there will be a time to fast. He is warned of his death. And he said, without me, feel your emptiness in your stomach and fast. And there's an interesting narrative now as we go. Jesus, we know, is resurrected from the dead by his heavenly Father. God the Father brings his son back from the dead, and so what does Jesus do? He eats fish with his disciples. They fill their stomachs to represent the fullness and joy they now feel in the presence of Jesus. 
But then there's a challenging moment where Jesus leaves us again to be with his heavenly Father. And so now, what do we do? Do we fast or do we feast? Which are we supposed to do? Well, Jesus sends his spirit. He told us, I'm going to leave, but it's going to be better for you. When I leave, I'm going to give you my very own spirit to be with you all at once so that you can all be connected to me and abide in me. I will be with you wherever you go, all of you, all at the same time, with my spirit. Though we won't be with Jesus as we know now, face to face. So for us, we fast and feast. We fast and feast. And this is why we have Lent. This is why we have Holy Week, to remind us in response to our brokenness, what Jesus sacrificed that we might be with him. And so we fast. We take time to remove food from our bodies so that the anguish that is the suffering of Jesus is felt in our stomachs. But we feast also. On Resurrection Sunday, on Easter Sunday, we feast. Easter Sunday is the time to taste the goodness of Jesus. This is the time to loosen your belt and eat and drink. And it's not gluttony. It's celebration. God and Jesus does not want you on Resurrection Sunday just to think how good he is. He wants you to taste his goodness, to drink and to eat on Resurrection Sunday so that his goodness and his mercy and his love is felt in your stomach, on your tongue, and on your taste buds. It is not consistent with the goodness of God to fast when we think about his resurrection. We feast We taste, we receive from the Father. And so in this way, our stomachs are an important way for us to feel the presence or the absence of God. This is why we have communion. Now, one caveat, I get that it's a small amount of Food and drink. You don't need to loosen your belts for communion this morning. What we do in communion is we anticipate. We anticipate. We don't think about the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. Taste it. We put something in our mouth to taste the love of God in Christ. We take tastes, albeit very little. We take little amounts of taste in our mouths so that in hope we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The hope of the resurrection is not that our tasting goes away. 
the hope of the resurrection is that in Christ, every taste is fulfilled. The reality, though, in feasting is that without Christ, we can eat all we want. And in fact, that's what much of the world does. It drinks and it eats, trying to find life. Without Christ, it will only be full. With Christ, it will be satisfied. Christ is essentially, is the reference point upon which all our satisfactions are fulfilled. If we are left with our Christ, our image cannot be made new. With Christ, our tasting and our drinking becomes a totally different experience in our relationship with God. As we think about going to the table now, we think both of the sacrifice of God, we think of the resurrection of Jesus to give us life. Jesus wants us to know through fasting and feasting that our stomachs are primary places and locations through which to relate to God so that in our, the absence of food and the receiving of food, we cling to his son. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess to you today that we oftentimes go about our life in total disconnection from what you're doing and offering for us. You offer us food or request us to take away food as ways to meaningfully connect with you. And so, Father, this morning we also want to confess that food by itself won't ultimately satisfy. But it's tasting the goodness of you as revealed in Jesus. And so I pray, Father, as we sing throughout the rest of our time together and taste, would you make yourself known to us by your spirit in a unique and powerful way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.